and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our deepest values, the stories that shape us, and the people behind the positions in our often divided common life. Every episode, I speak to someone who has some kind of public voice or platform. I ask them what they hold sacred, hear a bit about their story, and ponder together what could help us build empathy across our very deep differences. As always, please do rate, review, send an episode to a friend, and get in touch via Twitter, Instagram, or email to tell me what thoughts these conversations are provoking in you. Today, you'll hear from the entirely delightful Frank Cottrell Boyce. Frank is a screenwriter and novelist. He's best known for his screenplays for 24-Hour Party People, Welcome to Sarajevo and others, his award-winning children's books, including Millions, and for being the writer of the 2012 Olympic opening ceremony, one of many collaborations with his friend Danny Boyle. We spoke about his sacramental faith, the place of forgiveness in society, and what he sees as the writer's calling. I hope you enjoy listening. Frank, we're going to go straight in the deep end, uh, but everyone needs a little beat before (laughs) digging into their very deepest things. So uh, as a writer, this series is full of writers. Um, As a lover of words, how does the word sacred land with you? What kind of feelings and colours does it throw up? Oh, gosh. Um, Well, I'm from a sacramental religion. I'm a Catholic. So I have the experience of a sacrament a couple of times a week. So that is that kind of weird thing of that it's a double word in the sense that you know that there are, you know, places in the world where an object is sacred or a place is sacred. And I've, I feel that, obviously, and there are places that I've been where um, I feel a kind of sanctity. But uh, I'm also used to the idea that the sacred can be delivered in a fairly routine way, in a timetabled way, if you just walk a few doors up and open a door. Uh, so it's that feeling that the sacred invades. I guess if I was trying to formulate it, that the sacred is always there in my life. It's just, it's completely accessible and that it leads to the idea that everybody and everything is sacred in a sort of sense. Various people have challenged me on this. Asking an individual what is sacred to them is, uh, I wouldn't say it's erroneous, but many conceptions of the sacred are about the things that gather people, that draw people, that are common to groups and societies. Yeah. Um, but I do ask individuals what is sacred to them, partly just as I hope a little moment of using a bit of our brain or our soul that we're not used to using in everyday conversations, and partly because hearing from a range of people about their best thing, their deepest thing, the threads or the, the, the leitmotifs in the music of their life, just a way of building up a broader, richer p- picture of who we are together in yeah. our common life. Okay. Um, so it can be a principle or a value. It can be a place or an object. It can be a set of teachings. And none of us really know. But off the cuff, what is your guess? Oh, God. Uh, what is sacred to you? <laughs> well, I wouldn't miss mass for a million pounds, like, frankly. I, mean, I know that sounds mad because you can just go next week. But yeah. if you offered me money not to go to mass, I wouldn't go to mass. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't miss mass for that, right? Does that make sense? It, so that, it does, that but I want you to say more about okay, why so not? I, why not? Well, cultural. I mean, that's just ingrained. Mm. Um, and I'm not saying I've never missed mass because I occasionally have missed mass for one reason or another. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't consciously turn away. I am conscious of the value of it. 
So there isn't anything that you could offer me to exchange for it. There you go. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I might miss mass because I've missed an aeroplane or I'm sick, but I wouldn't consciously give up the sacrament for a kind of worldly thing. I would see that really clearly, yeah. that that would be a turning away. Yeah. Interesting. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And it's like, it's sort of the opposite of some of the sacred that you're talking about because it's not airs rock or it's not something you have to pilgrimage to yeah it's it's very accessible yeah but it's also it's kind of not negotiable yeah wonderful i want to try and get a sense of your formative influences your story so i'd love you to paint us a bit of a word picture of your childhood and particularly in a thing uh, and you've mentioned a kind of religious context. You can talk more about that. And if there's any kind of political or philosophical ideas in the air that you think have really formed the man you are today. Okay, I have like quite a clear picture of how my childhood went. My mum and dad married when my dad was, um, she had a very ordinary job. Um, he, and he went to night school and eventually became a teacher. So the story of my childhood is I experienced this amazing piece of social mobility, but it wasn't me. <laughs> so I've always felt lucky. Um, we moved from a little tiny flat, which we shared with my gran, uh, near the docks in Liverpool, which still seems like a really romantic and exciting thing to me, to a big housing estate, which had a garden and we had a bedrooms and everything. So that seemed full of optimism and full of hope. Nearly everybody on that housing estate had the same story. They'd come from a part of town that was sort of moving past its time in history into this sort of 60s, optimistic, forward-looking. They were all young. And on Sunday morning, about three quarters of this day, would stroll to Mass, like the Paseo in Spain. So a sense of belonging, a sense of gratitude. And, God, this sounds really disrespectful, but that housing state, I, to me, it's a wonderland, and it was a wonderland, but it is also little boxes. You know, there were houses that looked just the same. Um, and then the church was St. Bartholomew's Brain Hill, which is copied from a basilica in Rome. So you walk through that door and it was like, bang, gold leaf, <laughs> lapis lazuli, incense. So that sense that I tried to talk about before that, just around the corner, through a door, is something amazing, is really deep in me. Um, and I guess I lived through, like, that was sort of the end of a period when People, people who were brought to a Catholic just unquestionably carry on being Catholic. Mm -hmm. And my generation sort of fell off. But I've, I don't have a faith journey, I'm afraid, really. I just really loved it. I've always loved it. Do you mind just winding back a few generations or filling in the gaps? Because some listeners uh, who share some of your story will be very familiar, but others might ask, well, why was there three quarters of that estate all going to mass? What were the kind of historical and demographic well, oh, demographically, there were people who had been rehoused or moved out or had found a way to move out of the centre of Liverpool, which is a very Irish um, area. You know, people were assumed to be Irish whether they were or not. And you lived in an Irish culture, whether you were ethnically Irish or not. You know, the priests were Irish, cultural life was Irish. Um, the women, the old women dressed like something from, you know, a lithograph of life in Donegal in the 1890s, well into the 1960s, the old, old ladies did. So... Catholicism was a cultural thing as well as a religious thing. Mm. And then they sort of moved to these shiny new houses and it all felt a bit different, I guess. I was talking to another writer called Jen Ashworth and we talked quite a lot about 
class and she says when she got to Cambridge lots of people said and were there lots of books in your house growing up so what I don't want to do is say Frank were there lots of books in your house well, there were I, I had this amazingly lucky break that my dad you know dad was going to night school um and he did a degree through the open university I wanted to be with my dad um so I would get up the, the university, open university was sort of early morning programs with guys with bizarre facial furniture and he was doing an arts course so I used to get up and sit next to him so honestly by the time I mean obviously I hadn't done it with any rigor but i was very familiar with the the fundamentals of you know the, the i think there was a unit on vasari and stuff like that you know i kind of knew my way around stuff quite early it was in that sense it was a very intellectually exciting house and were you writing yeah endlessly all the time yeah <laughs> it's a it's a condition i don't i think it's a condition rather than a vocation yeah <laughs> and you've touched on this sort of the powerful aesthetics of a of a Catholic childhood. It always feels a very intimate question, a very private question, but the lived experience of the metaphysics, I guess, the presence of God or the saints or what it felt like to you praying as a child. I mean, as a child, it was completely unproblematic. You know, you were just talking. It's interesting that you've mentioned the saints because we had, I mean, in my primary school, we had nuns in our primary school who were amazing, absolutely amazing, brilliant. And they they, they lived happily on the, that cusp of Catholicism and folk Catholicism, which works with kids, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So that, that idea of talking to saints was not there. And my first book is about a boy who talks to saints and can hear them replying. But that, that's a very intimate conversation. I, I felt like quite an intimate conversation, um, connection with certain, well, with St. Francis of Assisi, which I thought, yeah. No, I didn't know anyone else called Francis. My dad was called Frank, but I didn't know anyone else. And just felt like, yeah, okay, we're, we're here. It's a buddy. You are very well known now as a children's writer, but had this distinguished career as a screenwriter for some really adult films. You know, Welcome to Sarajevo, 24 Hour Party People, Hillary and Jackie. Tell me, what was the thread that you were pursuing there? How much was it about film? How much was it? about the writing. How would you narrate that chapter of your life? <laughs> Does it feel a long time ago? It's just so hard to control film. You control whether a film gets made, when it gets made, how it gets made, who actually makes it. And as the writer, you've very little input into that. I mean, I've just loved, I've always loved movies and loved movies and I wanted to be a part of it. I don't think I've always done great work in it because it's quite hard to do great work. It's called the film industry, but it's not really a film industry. It's really kind of odd what it is I, I can't really describe what it is without being disparaging but you know I, I've just shot a film in Rome this summer uh, about the homeless world cup mm-hmm. which I'm really I, I don't know if it's going to be a good movie but I'm proud of having made a film about something as worthwhile as that that took 11 years to get off the ground I mean that's crazy isn't it that's not that's not kind of viable as a way to make a living <laughs> um, so you know, chaotic, enjoyable, unpredictable. Um. Talking about politics in that era, and you you mentioned kind of in passing a sort of tribal, uh, fiery period, and I think I've picked up some sort of Marxism-related... Oh From quite a tribal background, politically. You know, it would be impossible not to be feel tribal. Although of late, I've come to be 
very anxious about that tribalism. Um, I think, you know, whether it's social media or uh, Brexit-y things or whatever, that that we seem to be more divided in a more kind of obdurate and unquestioning way than we've ever been around, and around big subjects where nuance is important. And I think if you've got anything to give, it's to sort of to be generous and to point to nuance and to point to good on both sides. I think that's what I'm concerned with and it, and what I'm tempted by is being tribal. You know, so that's the, that's the, the uh, ethical battle that's going on in my life at the moment. Yeah. But I'm really aware of like, so say just, a, just off the top of my head, like a big issue like Brexit, people have been viciously debating that for the last, what, three, four years. N- nobody's changed their mind. It's become like we're Newtonian fluids that the more you stamp on them, the harder they get, you know, and you can walk on custard if you stamp on it hard enough. And we've all turned to custard, I think. Yeah. Um, and that's depressing. Mm. We will definitely come back to that because I want to hear what helps us. But I just want to fill in a few more gaps. Did you really have no kind of faith crisis in your teens or your 20s? The idea that it just has always sat so easily with you. I'm very envious if that's something. I had it like because I might be just a bit dim. You know, like first week at uni, I didn't go to mass. I'd been at home like the year before uni, my gran was quite ill. And we we ended up on, everyone ended up on a kind of rotor looking after it. I was really ready to leave home and for it to be different. And I went to Oxford, which couldn't have been more different. So I had a kind of week of thinking, right, that's that. Uh, <laughs> close that door. And it was horrible. It was just like, it's like I spent Sunday thinking, what? What's this like being in a Sunday supplement? It's tasted of death, you know? It's like, a dark week of the soul. Yeah, I had a dark afternoon of the soul. I probably, probably went to evening mass in the end to get the game up. <laughs> And there's been times when it is just habit, but then I've had the nows to realise that, well, you know, training for a marathon is habit. There are going to be crap days when you've got to drag yourself up and down the bypass if you are actually going to run that marathon, you know? So you are going to need your faith, so you have to keep it in trim. So there's arid, arid months and years, you know? Yeah. And then it all comes back to you. So I'm not saying it was sort of enraptured week after week. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but I've had, you know, I did have a kind of epiphanic moment that I don't really talk about very much, but I was in, I was walking around Sefton Park and there was one of those mad, oh, that's so rude, but like, you know, those preachers who preached to the air mm. and was yelling and I, I looked at him and he's like, he's, he'd obviously been at sea, you know, he had that, if you look from the, but you can spot that. Um, and he, he sort of, he was old, but he was full of energy. And he, he was telling the story of Pilate and Jesus and he said, and Pilate's asking him this question about truth. I can, I can still hear him. Sorry I'm doing the voice. I don't I mean to it. be, but you just went. And it's an intellectual question. And there is no intellectual answer. There is no intellectual answer because the truth is standing in front of him. And it's not an intellectual answer. It's a man. And it just absolutely undid me. I was like walking, pushing a push to through the park, thinking I might go into the Avery Cafe for a cup of tea. And this guy, and I never said anything to him afterwards either, but it just really, because I have, quite a strong intellectual life and a very intellectual view of myself. He just seemed to be talking to me. And it was um, it was amazing, actually. And that's... So you were talking about the sacred, and that I think that's the core for me, that the answer is a person, and that person is visible in every person. I love this story about... Um, when, I was, when, when I lived in the middle of Liverpool, we went to um, St. Alphonsus School, 
and St. And I might have this wrong, actually, but please don't tell me if I have. But I think St. Alphonsus was the doorman in the seminary or the monastery, wherever he was. But this is the only thing I know about him, that whoever knocked on the door, he would say, coming, Lord. I just think, like, before you know who it is, yeah, that's who it is. And that's, to me, the answer that I could carry around with me. That's like, at some point, someone who I really can't see any good in, I just have to keep trying to. Yeah. You know, whether it's the other side of the debate about immigration or whatever, whatever, whatever. That that's that's the sacred that this that that person is also sacred. Yeah, human. Yeah. How easy was it to navigate? I guess in the film industry, and maybe since, as you've been in and around publishing and films and and a big variety of media, you're one of the first names that come to mind when people think about Catholics or Christians okay. in public life in this field because it is seen as like quite unusual, I think. And yeah, have you found it difficult or challenging or no helpful? I, well, I I never like what happened to me was that I wrote that script millions. Uh, actually, I, as with everything, you know, I wrote that like six years before it got made, but which is sort of explicitly Catholic. And I was quite shy of that and I'd never done that before. And like, you know, we, we talk as though we sort of make artistic or ethical choices, but, you know, I had seven kids and I was trying to make a living in a, in a very volatile, untrustworthy, uh, unpredictable industry. You know, so it's like your choices are not as big as you think they are. But when Millions came out, I sort of, like in short time, sort of outed myself as a Catholic. And I was really taken aback by the reaction to that because what people like it, you know, quite surprisingly, people, I, I now completely open about saying, well, I'll say a prayer for you then. Um, people want you to, yeah. you know, everyone's, nobody's offended by that. And people might be comforted by it. And anyway, I am who I am. Yeah. You know, so I used to be a bit kind of like, I've got to go there, but I must make sure I get mass. So I just, you know, blah, blah, blah. Now I say, yeah, um, yeah, I'll come, but can you make sure I get mass? And yeah. people kind of like it. They yeah. kind of like to know it's still there. I think often it's about how you carry it, right? If it, if yeah. you, you have such a palpable undefensiveness about it. Well, that's, and because that's you're learnt, not, though. That, right. I mean, or, and, or that's a privilege. Right. Because you, you don't, if you are, I find that if I'm not prickly about my faith, other people don't get prickly. Whereas if I let myself do the slightly tense, fearful thing of they're going to think I'm a, yeah. Judgmental, homophobe, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then the completely without any words sometimes the atmosphere changes and then everyone feels a bit tense and then they're more likely to not want yeah. to have it anywhere near them. Yeah. yeah how we that. keep how we root ourselves to be relaxed yeah. about who we are. Yeah. You said it's learned. How did you learn it? <laughs> well, no, that story that I just told you that, that stepping forward in when millions came out and just sort of saying, well, yeah, that's what because there were conversations when he was making it where the boy talks to saints mm. and you'd have conversations with funders who would say, so he has to move on from that. And I'd be like, uh, what? No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not, not in a kind of like, no, but in like, why? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that seems like a really good solution to me. Why would you want to move on from that? Um, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. So there's a pressure on you not to be prickly, I think. Part of my witness is to be nice, yeah. <laughs> you know, because you're aware that people sometimes aren't. Um and that sets things back, yeah. you know. Am I kind of narrating it correctly that Millions was the kind of turning point from mainly film that led you down 
children's literature. Oh, yeah, no, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Danny Boyle took me out to dinner before, and we were talking about books, and I, I talked a lot about children's books, and he said, well, why haven't you read one, written one? And I said, oh, you know, I haven't really had an idea. And he went, this is your chance. Right? So I went away and wrote that, so he gave me that yeah. push, you know. Yeah, t- just t- narrate the emotional journey for me of being a screenwriter working mainly in films to being someone working mainly in children. Um, it felt, as soon as I started doing it, it genuinely felt like a vocation. Um, and there's been times when I kind of torture myself about it, thinking, well, like, you know, I, I'm a relatively successful children's writer, but that you, you're not taking over the cultural conversation the way a big movie would, even for a week. So it's like, kind of, is this like watercolours? You know what I mean? Am I in the kind of model boat club here? But I'm really, 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 really aware of the strength that I got from the children's books that I read when I was year six, year seven, maybe year five, year eight. Those, the books that are what are now called middle grade books. Mm. The resilience that I got from them, the joy that I got from them, the way they sort of mapped the world for me. Yeah. And that this is live ammo. And if you're doing it just for a, a few, that's fine. You know, it felt like this is what I'm here for. Yeah. You know. What were your favourite children's books growing up? Well, since we're talking about the secret, one thing, one was The Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula Gwynn, which is about a school for wizards. And the, I don't know if you know that book. No, but I'm writing it down for my seven-year-old. Right, so it's a series, Earthsea. Uh, and the first two are absolutely extraordinary. And the first one, I can remember, I, I wasn't off school very much. I was a very school-shaped boy. And then in year six, I was kept off for about a week. I can't remember why. But I read that in bed and I could literally feel it rearranging my head. Because if he goes to a school for wizards where there are two strains of magic. One is sort of spectacular and entertaining and courtly. And it's the school of illusion. But there's the other school, which is magic, which demands a, a proper engagement with the thing that you're working on. So you can't change the colour of a flower unless you know, or a petal unless you know its true name and you have to really understand what it is before you can change it and you have to also understand that when you change it the rest of the world would be in some way changed and it's really stern it's really stern and so metaphysical and it's so much not what magic is in children's books which is solutions to problems you know or you know or spectacle it's literally the opposite of that it's like real engagement with yeah. how things are and what's amazing in the world. And um, the hero sort of falls foul of that division. It's an amazing book, absolutely astonishing book. So the follow-up to that is The Tombs of Atuan, in which the hero is, he has to find, and, you know, it's a sort of typical trope, he's got to find this necklace thing called amulet, I can't remember what it is, but it's hidden in this labyrinth. What is it they get called? MacGuffins? Yeah. And he's hardly in this book, but a girl is in this book who lives in the labyrinth. And it's a picture of a hugely powerful religion, um, like big buildings and labyrinths and stuff like this, that none of the people running it really believe in it anymore. Not in an explicit way, but it's just sort of become this set of practices. Yeah. So, and when he comes and finds this thing, the girl's like, well, it's just the thing. And she's going, no, this is all real. This stuff that you believe. It is real. It's a book about that difference between 
well, faith in religion, but the practice and the truth. Mm. And I love that. You know, that's an amazing book, I think. How much do you see parallels with the wider practice of... Well, personally as well, that you fall into this thing that that you think you believe something that you don't act like you really believe it, Yeah, you know? Yeah. So it's like a more... I wouldn't take, like... I know you could parlay that into a critical thing, but I'm much more interested in, like, what it means for me. Self-challenge. The sort of children's book news at the moment, um, although it will have passed, hopefully, by the time we release this episode, is about... I'm sure it's just one tiny, slightly bonkers school district in America, which this thing always is, and then it makes world news. But the um, amazing graphic novel Mouse about the Holocaust, there's been a kerfuffle about whether children should be allowed to read it. And I have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. And feeling myself two equal and opposite instincts. One is the sort of anti-censorship, you know, children can cope with more than we think they can. Trying to edit the world too much for them is just pointless. And, you know, if you've got keen readers, just let them go read. And the other comes from my very strong sense of the power of stories Mm. and the power of cultural Mm. narratives and the formation that books, television, advertising, the way we narrate the world will have on them and what they think a good life is and what they think love looks yeah. like and what they think human value is. And I find myself wanting to censor because I, I want to check what are the stories that, what you know, uh, what does that say about women? What does that say about freedom? You know, which is uh, doing the same thing that we're very easy to dismiss. And I know that you homeschooled some of your children. Yeah. How yeah. have you navigated that, I guess, personally with your kids? And then as a children's author in some of those conversations, what is wisdom? in the stories that we let our children be exposed to. God, that's so tough. First of all, it was my wife who home-educated. I just stood there. Um, I mean, I just completely, I think you're right. You know, I think if if I didn't think stories were important and powerful, why would you write them? Why would you read them? Why would you write them? Why would you cherish them? And if you do think they are, then obviously some stories are bad. But that's different from legislating for it, isn't it? That's about the care of your own and how, and your, you know, the stories that, that, that's, that really governs how I write. Uh, and it really governed how I selected for my children. That's a different thing from trying to ban a book. A mouse in particular is, that seems like a really bad example because that's so a beautiful. really beautiful book about a subject that they are going to find out about. And it's probably better to have found out about, well, you know, it, what, what better way could there be to find out about it, to engage your empathy without... Um, without getting mired down in politics and the history of it. It cut, it cut, mouse cuts to the essentials, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know where that leaves us, really. I, I, um, yeah. I mean, there is that thing as well, is that you step, if you say, oh, let them read whatever, what you're doing is let the market decide, which isn't, the, the market doesn't love your kids, you know? And I, I, on a practical level, my answer would be, well, you should be reading what they read. You should be reading with them. Mm. And so you should now. It shouldn't be a surprise. You shouldn't turn out 10 years later to be going, oh, my kids read that and it was awful. I want to touch briefly on the Olympics um, opening ceremony. And I know it's a while ago now, but I... One of the things I'm very fascinated by is this, the cultural stories, the stories that we tell that are very implicit. And in some ways, novels and books are almost easier to 
um, just, yeah, or discriminate between, although very often the messages are embedded in, in narrative and beautiful and powerful ways. But it's it's the rest that we just, I think, unconsciously imbibe. Yes, no, Advertising and news and newspapers and yeah. that has very strong embedded messages about what good life is and what we should value. Um, and But I think the Olympics opening ceremony is the biggest and most lasting and profound statement of the story we at least wanted to tell about ourselves as a nation from as long as I can remember, the most explicit public statement. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to just hear a bit about that journey and the conversations that you had and what you think the legacy of it is. It seems to be, it seemed to be very forward-looking and then the world seemed to change completely a few weeks later. Mm. It seemed to be very open and embracing and the world became very divided quite quickly afterwards. So I got very ambivalent feelings mm. about that, really. It seems to belong to a different world. Yeah. And it doesn't seem to be... Like, if you put that on now, you would not think that's what Britain's like. There would be a huge argument about it. Yeah. Which I don't remember at the time, but maybe I wasn't looking. Well, I remember because I was supposed to be, God help me, um, because I was the one doing least on the day because I'd been the writer, as opposed to someone stitching costumes or directing dances. I had to go and do the Today programme the next morning and everyone else had been up to sell... Well, I, even I was up till late, but like they were up to like half six, seven o'clock. Um, so, and it was sort of geared up to be a huge debate. Mm. And in fact, they think they brought Mary Beard in and um, Giles Corrin, who was like a paid controversialist at the time, and they both had loved it. So, I can I can still remember John Humphreys looking really disappointed <laughs> that there was nothing going on in the studio to talk about, you know. But everyone just loved it, didn't they? Yeah. Could you summarise? You know, this is a horrible thing to ask a writer to do. But if there was like a phrase or a few words that you think summed up the statement that I was making, what would it be? Wonder. There were two words on the wall. One was wonder and one was visceral. So <laughs> Danny wrote visceral and I put wonder, I think. And I had that G.K. Chesterton line about the world is not, the world is not perishing for lack of wonders. The world is perishing for lack of wonder. Which goes right back to what I was saying about masses just around the corner. You know, it's just, it's just through a door. It's just around the corner. The sacred is just there in your life. It's not any buried in, you know, the Ark of the Covenant or the Holy Grail or any of those objects. It's just around the corner. So that, I love that line. From, and I think that is your job as a writer, to remind people that the world is perishing for lack of wonder and to re renew the wonder. Our view of our history has become so narrow and so desiccated and so much had been forgotten. And it was dead easy to surprise people because there was just stuff that people had forgotten about this country. Like, well, at the time, the Windrush. Um, but, you know, the Industrial Revolution seemed to have been forgotten. If you, you know, when people, people were predicting that it was going to be dreadful because when they thought about English history, they thought Winston Churchill, the Tudors, uh, that's it. You know, <laughs> two world wars and one world cup. And they'd forgotten about all this riches, you know. Yeah. You've mentioned wonder. Unpack it for me a little bit. When you've written the children's book and you've wrestled through that whole process and you get to the end and you think, okay, I'm pleased with that. What are the ingredients that are in there? Oh, God. Mm. Do you know what What's I... your manifesto for children's literature? <laughs> like, if I had a manifesto, I, it would be to sort of give back the things that I got, which a hu huge thing for me is small pleasures. So the writers that have really say were Tuva Janssen, Ursula Gwynn, um, Milne, actually, uh, Just William especially, 
um, that idea that there is, I think small pleasures are incredibly fortifying and they will get you through really difficult times. But they're also portals to wonder, you know, why is it all right? Why is it enough to sit under a tree with a gobstopper and jumble the mongrel and your mates? You know, why just, why is William yearning for that? You know, what it, like, what is behind that yearning? Um, but even if you can't get to that, then the gobstopper of the tree and the mongrel will do it for you, you know? Um, or in the moving books, it's coffee and pancakes, isn't it? Yeah, they have these amazing adventures and then mummy makes coffee and pancakes. So like, so sort of alerting people to small wonders, I think, is a, a small, small pleasures. I think that's a huge thing. It's really fortifying. And especially during the um, pandemic, I did these sort of online writing, writing classes for children on Instagram. And I was really, really aware of like kids who didn't have gardens and weren't getting out. And that I did like these crazy writing classes, not to make them better writers, but to make them notice things. Because mm. the more you notice, the happier you'll be. Yeah. You know, so it was about noticing where you are and noticing little things and taking pleasure in little things. So I think that's a simple manifesto. Yeah. But then the other thing is like creatively that I think the honesty is to write what you, to give yourself up to the process. So sometimes you see kids' books where you know it's sort of been mechanical and calculated. And then there are others where you know that the person sitting down to write this had no clue where it was going. Yeah. Or may, they may have known where it was going, but they had no clue how they are going to get there. And yeah. it's really thrilling. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's the thing. There's a wildness to it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have the Mary Oliver quote, um, attention is the beginning of devotion. Oh, that's brilliant. My that's disc. fantastic. And you have written a lot about forgiveness. And uh, I'm sure there'll be another forgiveness-related story by the time this comes out. But the recent one is Michael Gove asking for Christian forgiveness for Boris Johnson's party shenanigans, which is an interesting theological concept to insert into that particular debate. But you've been intrigued enough by this concept to write a Bible study about it. <laughs> Let's land on our public conversations and our divisions and tribalism. What role could or should forgiveness be playing? And oh why is it so hard? Well, I think it's so hard because it is a process. You know, it is a process, and it's a, it's kind of completely cuts counter to everything that's in us. So I think like stories are who we are. So if you look at the stories that that we tell ourselves, very very few of them deal with forgiveness. Uh, our instincts are not to forgive. I think you know, um, I, in that book again, King mentioned Chekhov saying, "If there's a gun in Act One, it has to be fired in Act three. We want resolution and the easiest resolution is victory mm. for one side or the other yeah and uh, there are very very few stories as a storyteller there are very few a handful of stories about forgiveness prodigal son and Gawain and the green knight and, and there's very few others because forgiveness is a story about something not happening so that's like i spent years trying to make a film with the railway man like literally 15 years trying to make that film and in the end, it's not that great a movie. But it's that thing is like, that's a story about something that doesn't happen. So that's very... Because it's, it's the gun in that one never gets fired. Yeah, you decide not to fire it. That's, that's such a difficult story to tell. So it's, I think that's the starting point, is that forgiveness is hard. And it's, it's inhuman, it's against nature, and that's why we have to have grace. Hmm. You know, and that's why we have to have the atonement, that's why we have to have the crucifixion, because th this is not something that comes easily to us 
the Gove thing. You see, that's so interesting, isn't it? Because what he's really saying there, like the unkind part of me, what he's saying there is move on. Mm. It's like, well, I do forgive Boris Johnson because I can look at Boris Johnson and think, my God, you know, you, you're just not on top of this. And for whatever reason, you wanted this job that you're just not up to. And you, you don't understand yourself and you're flailing around. And to me, it looks terrible. It must be an incredibly I, hard place a, to be. On a human level, it's not. It's, I think it's impossible not to forgive him, for goodness sake. You know, look at him. But at the same time, that doesn't mean it was all right. And that's the thing about for, forgiveness as opposed to mercy. You can be forgiven and it's not all right. Yeah. Those two things can happen. Like mercy is dismissing someone's sins and mercy is dismissive. Mm. You know, mercy is imperial. It's like, I'm the emperor, you can go free. And it's like, because you're important. Like, for forgiveness, it has to be, this is not all right. Yeah. But you are forgiven. Yeah. Um, There's the, the two things stay in a kind of equilibrium with each other. I've been doing some thinking about this and I, I've come to the conclusion, I, I, I like the concept of sin. I find it helpful. It is. Um, yeah. Brokenness, fracture. It helps me to name the things that are wrong with us and not pretend they're not happening. Um, and I thought for a long time that talking about sin in public was the problem. And I actually think it's forgiveness that we have more of a problem with because it does Definitely. go against our instincts of what justice is like. We certainly have forgiveness for other people is that, that, that and I see it in my kids, this like hunger for fairness involves making sure other people get their justice as Yeah. But I don't. Yeah, that's wild, isn't it? That they'll get crosser about somebody else not being told off than they would about themselves being made feel better. Yeah. See, it is deep in us, I think, you know. It's really deep. And it's making me think about the fact that the Harry Potter books have this incredibly Christological, uh, you know, conclusion of laying down life for love and the kind of love conquering death. But there is no forgiveness mm. or there's a sort of strong ambiguity. In there's those. a kind of an explanation rather than forgiving. What is the one thing you've learnt about engaging across our differences, communicating across our divides, and what makes it more likely that those moments are more human, fruitful, productive, and peaceful? If there's one thing we could all be practising more of, what would it be? That, that's such a good question. The trouble is, not the trouble is, the challenge is, it's the stuff that sounds almost boring and trite, like listening, which is in fact incredibly difficult and subversive and powerful. But the language we have for it is very bled dry. I think one thing that's happened, I hope this doesn't come over as sort of judgmental or dismissive in any way, is that we started to idolise our own identities. So it's like, I'm not going to compromise on this because that's part of who I am. I think it's like, mm, can you leave your, you know, like if you went into Tombstone back in the day, you had to leave your guns at the corral. You know, could you just leave it at the door while we sort this out and then come back? to who you are. Mm. Do, do, do you know what I mean? There's a, well, it's obvious, isn't it? Like, so Brexit is not about a trade, country, uh, a trade deal with the European Union. No. That's become about all kinds of other things that it's got stuck onto. It's like, if you could leave those aside, that would be great. Yeah, there was this about, quite technical, bureaucratic problem yeah. for a second. And there are people who want that to happen, you know, want to find divisive, well, to find, it wasn't a divisive issue, it was a non-issue, and make it, 
pump that into a divisive issue. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, that is problematic because there are problems in the world that become insolvable, become uns- insoluble because each side is over-invested in them emotionally. Mm. That's so trying. It's not. Frank Cottrell Boyce, thank you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. Thank you. It's been really wonderful to be here. Thank you. Gosh, it was so interesting to hear what a difference it makes when you are completely soaked like Frank in such a sacramental faith where the sacraments are the sacred thing. And it made me do some reading, reminding myself uh, that within Catholicism, a sacrament is, the definition is it is a means by which God uses to show his grace and help people achieve salvation. It actually means a sign of the sacred. And there are seven of them, the mass, obviously, marriage, penance, baptism, confirmation, anointing the sick, and when priests get ordained. It's a little factoid for you today. And I loved the paradox, the richness of Frank's sense that the sacred is both kind of awe-inspiring and uplifting, but also available on a schedule just around the corner at this very everyday sense of the sacred. And I was so intrigued by him saying he wouldn't skip mass for a million pounds. And his line was, that would be a kind of turning away. I mean, there is something deeply countercultural in that and very challenging because as he said, you know, he could just go next week. He's not giving it up forever. But that not going when he could go for money would be, would be sacrilegious, would be a problem. And he's so clear and calm and committed to this thing, this sacred slash ordinary thing. And honestly, I felt a little bit jealous as a Christian from a less sacramental background. He has this beautiful description of his childhood. Uh, There have been a few actually echoes in episodes in this series. This sense of working class communities as places of really strong belonging, as um, places of high social capital, I think would be the policy wonk word for it. Um, I wonder if it would still be the case. I fear maybe it wouldn't. Many times when I talk to Catholics, I get such a strong sense of the aesthetics of the faith, maybe because they've all been creative, actually, creatives actually thinking about it. Maybe if you're a Catholic engineer or politician, it's not so formative. But I love the, the vividness of a world of nuns on the cusp of folk Catholicism and such a strong sense of the presence of the saints, you know, this lush fabric of stories and characters that he was immersed in. It's sort of no wonder he ended up doing what he's doing. And obviously, from my perspective, he spoke so beautifully about Jesus and his faith and his dark afternoon of the soul. Honestly, he's one of the most lovely and non-anxious people I've ever met. And I do think there's a lesson in there when he talked about he'd been hiding his face for years in this sort of quite brutal, super cool film industry world. But when he started talking about it, people were totally fine. I really valued his honesty in just naming the relative cultural capital of the industries that he's moved between. You know, when you're making films, you can really make something that's talked about all over the country. And children's literature is this sort of quieter scene as having kind of less of a cool factor, I guess, essentially. 
He used the phrase, you know, am I doing watercolours? Am I in the model boat club? Which was just lovely honesty and self-reflection. And I do think it takes a certain kind of stability and a certain kind of low ego to take the less glamorous route um, to do the thing. One, you know that you're really good at and two, that you actually think has more impact in the long term. And I think that thing, the thing that will really stay with me is that G.K. Chesterton quote, the world is not perishing for lack of wonders, the world is perishing for lack of wonder. And honestly, today I am fighting the temptation not to be completely overwhelmed by the state of the world, to be here today, and prayer helps, and my friends help, and listening to other people helps, but noticing the wonders of the world helps too. Receiving the gifts that we've already been given helps too. And I think there's a priestly echo to what he said about writers. They're calling to help people notice, to say, look over here, here's this sacred thing. Here's this wonder. Here's this human being. Notice them. (sighs) Good for the soul. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. Remember, sharing is caring, as my four-year-old says, so please do send this or another episode to a friend, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or my personal favourite, leave us a review. I really get a thrill when I see a new one pop up. Huge thanks to Abby Allison for research and production support, and Emily Down for our visual identity. We are edited by Drew Hawley, and our music is composed and arranged by Luke Stanley, with vocals by Lizzie Harvey. The Sacred is a project of the think tank Theos, and you can find out more about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk.